I invite you to turn with me in the Scriptures to 2 Chronicles, chapter 12, in the Pew Bible, page 464. We'll continue our series of sermons on God's work in the kingship of Rehoboam, grandson of David, son of Solomon. We'll read chapter 12. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen. And the people were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukim, and Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah, who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, You abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. Then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, they have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, he brought, or the guard came and carried them and brought them back to the guard room. And when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to make a complete destruction. Moreover, conditions were good in Judah. So King Rehoboam grew strong in Jerusalem and reigned. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite, and he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Now the acts of Rehoboam from first to last, are they not written in the chronicles of Shemaiah the prophet and of Iddo the seer? There were continual wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And Abijah, his son, reigned in his place. That's our text for this morning's sermon. In response to the gospel, we'll sing Psalm 66, the stanzas 5 and 6. Into the net, O God, you brought us, laid heavy burdens on our backs, foes drove right over us in chariots, 
you humbled us by their attacks. Stanzas 5 and 6 of Psalm 66. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, Israel of God, if you've read through the books of Kings or Chronicles and taken in all the stories of the various kings of Judah after the division of the kingdom, and there was one queen in that time period as well, you've probably had the sense that there were some good kings and there were some bad kings. There are a total of 21 kings until the exile into Babylon, after which the line of David more or less peters out. It wouldn't be hard to make a chart of those 21 kings and put, say, an X beside the ones who are bad, the bad kings, and put a check mark beside the ones who are the good kings. We kind of like that sort of organization, right? We like those categories. The kids, for example, I think they will still play cops and robbers. As adults, we like to read westerns with the cowboys and their enemies. We like to watch detective shows. We know the character. There's the good guys versus the bad guys. There's heroes and there's villains. And so in the Bible, good king, bad king. Only real life isn't always so cut and dried, is it? It's not always so clear who the good guy or the bad guy is. Let me ask you this, what do you make of King Rehoboam now that we've heard a, a few sermons on his kingship? Is he a bad king or is he a good king? If you only read chapter 10 of 2 Chronicles, you might say, well, he was a bad king. He certainly started out rough. But in chapter 11, we saw that last time, there's some good in King Rehoboam. And now in chapter 12, we see something bad, and then we see something good. So what is it now? Is Rehoboam a villain or a hero? Bad guy or good guy? Well, it turns out, brothers and sisters, he's actually just an ordinary guy, just like you and me, a person who is drawn to foolish behavior because of the sin that clings to our hearts. Like us, Rehoboam is a sheep that's prone to wander. He's a sheep that would wander and be forever lost if the Lord had not reached out to him in his mercy. That'll be our theme this morning as I bring you God's Word. The Lord shows mercy to a foolish king. The Lord shows mercy to a foolish king. We'll see the mercy of a humbling hand and the mercy of a humbled heart. Our text, chapter 12, verse 1, it opens on a somber note. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. He abandoned the law of the Lord. Well, that does confirm that prior to that, as we saw last week in chapter 11, for most of the 
first three years of his reign, Rehoboam was determined to follow God and obey his commandments. During that three-year period, after that very rough beginning where he rejected the godly advice of the older men, Rehoboam actually listened to God's prophet Shemaiah. He turned back his army and he went back to Judah and he devoted himself to God's covenant law. And for three years, we saw that in chapter 11, God blessed Rehoboam with prosperity. This is the basic way that it goes in God's covenant. Blessings for obedience, punishment or curses for disobedience. We read about the blessings last week in Deuteronomy 28. This morning we read about the curses or the punishment in Leviticus 26. And the chronicler, we'll see this over and over again in his book, he makes this point very plain. If you seek the Lord with all your heart, if you obey the Lord's word, His law, His instruction, things will go well with you. God will bless you. If you don't follow the Lord and His law, it will not go well with you. It's really quite that simple. Now, I know and the chronicler knows and you know that there are exceptions to that rule, right? You can think of the suffering of Job. And you can think of Psalm 73 where Asaph is envious over the prospering of the wicked. And he says, Lord, how can that be that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And we certainly need to be careful not to make snap judgments like Job's buddies. That if a person is suffering, that therefore they're under God's wrath because of their sin. These are exceptions, but the exceptions highlight the normal pattern. And we have to learn to live by the norms that God lays down in Scripture. Blessings for obedience, punishments for disobedience. Nor should we confuse this with the pagan idea of karma. Sometimes people talk about karma. Karma is going to get you. Where your actions determine your fate. If you do good, then you will get good. If you do evil, then evil will get you. Nor is this the idea of what goes around comes around. We ourselves are not gods, of course, and there is no such impersonal power out there somewhere that, that somehow balances out the universe like the people who believe in karma believe. No, the reality is this. You and I live in a relationship with a very alive God in heaven. Conscious, personal being whose name is Yahweh, who lives forever. And He, in His grace, has made promises to us in His covenant. Promises to save us from our sins in His own Son, Jesus Christ. Promises to bless us with every blessing in Christ. And we've made promises to Him. Promises to trust Him, promises to obey Him. And the way it goes in the covenant is this way. God is pleased when we trust and obey, and He's displeased when we don't. And when we don't, God will hold us to account. He's also promised to punish Him, or punish us, when we break faith with Him. That's part of of the covenant arrangement. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. 
It equally applies in the New Testament, the New Covenant, which continues right up to today. Jesus himself taught us in the Sermon on the Mount to expect from our Father's hands blessings, physical blessings like food, shelter, and clothing. When Jesus said this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that you need, God will give them to you. They will be added to you. And Hebrews 10 makes it clear that the stakes have actually gotten higher in this regard in the new covenant because Jesus has now come and shed his blood. So Hebrews 10 says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses in time past dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment, he writes, do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, look, honor the blood of the covenant, Jesus' blood, trust in that blood, and you will experience covenant blessings, salvation. But if you dishonor that blood, if you dishonor Jesus, you can only expect wrath. And wrath is exactly what falls on Rehoboam. For notice, it wasn't just the king as a single person who abandoned the law of the Lord, but says our text, all Israel with him. Well, the northern tribes, those ten northern tribes, they had already abandoned the law of the Lord by turning to worship the golden calves, but now the southern kingdom has also gone astray, led by the bad example of the king. This also comes back repeatedly in Chronicles. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. In other words, people follow their leaders. They follow after the example of their leaders. When a king turns away from God, the people tend to follow his lead into wickedness. We're talking about people on, uh, on the whole. There's always some exceptions. A king committed to the Lord, on the other hand, means a nation will be committed to the Lord. That's a huge part of the king's duties. We read that in Deuteronomy 17, how the king was charged to write a copy of the covenant law for himself. He had to do that in his own hand. And the Levites had to approve the king's copy before he could use it. So it had to be the exact law of the Lord that he had in front of him. And the king had to keep that law on his person, so a scroll had to be close by, and he had to study it all the days of his life. Now, to be sure, every Israelite was required to love and keep God's covenant law, but the highest authority in the land, the king, was to lead in that by his sincere godly example. And if he did, then the people would follow suit. And so that brings this question to you and me this morning, brothers and sisters. Are you in your homes leading your family by similar godly example? Because we may not be the king of Israel, but we are authority figures in different places. We're moms and dads in our homes. That's authority. We're bosses in the workplace. That's authority. We're teachers in the classroom. That's authority. We're office bearers in the church. 
how are we doing with that? If mom and dad are lackluster in loving and obeying God, if, if the parents don't diligently serve the Lord, will the kids really be any different? Would it be a surprise if the kids grew up and drifted away from the Lord? If Christian teachers in the classroom don't show love for God and neighbor, can we expect the students to do any different? If you are an employer, a boss, a supervisor, so focused on making money and getting ahead that you, you hardly have concern for the employees who work for you and rarely speak in the workplace about the Lord Jesus Christ, how can you expect your, your employees to work for you with Christian love or to treat your customers or their fellow co-workers with respect and consideration in a Christian manner if you yourself are not leading that way. If as an elder or pastor or deacon, if brothers, we are not modeling for church members the love of Christ for His people and the dedication to serve the Lord, won't our poor example become the norm in the congregation? Rehoboam and the people we read, they abandoned the law of the Lord. That means they rolled up those scrolls. They put them away. They forgot about God's word. They rejected what God had to say and they rejected living the Lord's way. And that means that they rejected the Lord himself. This is what God says to Rehoboam through the prophet in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, you have abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. It works the same in 2022. If we shove our Bibles into a closet or into a drawer or leave them forever closed on a bedside table, if we give the Word of God no thought, if our thinking and our actions and our speaking is not guided by the Word of the Lord, then in practice we also have abandoned the Lord. And that has consequences. Covenant curses will come. And these are no trifling matters. In the case of Rehoboam and Judah, the punishment of God came in the form of an enemy attack. Just like what we read in Leviticus 26, God had warned them, and the enemy was King Shishak of Egypt. And the author of our text is very clear on the cause of Shishak's invasion. Verse 2, in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen and a numberless horde of soldiers. And what happened? Well, those 15 cities we saw last time that God had allowed Rehoboam to build and fortify in defense, they're all taken, just like that. And Shishak with his army comes as far as the holy city Jerusalem. Rehoboam and all of Judah in a, in a very short time are suddenly undone. They lay helpless before the Egyptians. 
Another way to say that is they were humbled before the Egyptians. Do you see how the punishment fits the crime? Verse 1 tells us that it was when Rehoboam was established. It was when Rehoboam had grown strong that he and the people turned away and abandoned the Lord. So they were feeling pretty good about themselves, you see. They felt self-sufficient after those three years of prosperity, building up the fortified cities. Rehoboam's had plenty of children. People are streaming to the south from the north. Don't need the Lord anymore, thinks Rehoboam. Isn't that a familiar pattern amongst us? When things go well for us, when our plans succeed, and prosperity comes to us in a variety of ways, we can easily start to think that it's all because of us. See what I've accomplished? Look at what I've got. See what my business planning and smart decisions have brought about. See what my ingenuity has done. We puff ourselves up. Oh, we have our subtle ways. We don't do it quite so crassly, but we, we, we puff ourselves up. And as we get bigger, God is squeezed out of the picture. I can make my own way in this world. Thank you very much. Prosperity as we saw in chapter 11, is one of God's covenant blessings. But you know what? We can turn it into a curse pretty fast. When we start in our pride to credit ourselves and not the Lord. When in our arrogance we begin to rely on our own smarts and do not bend the knee before our covenant God in total dependence. Can you begin to see, beloved, why sending the Egyptian militia is actually the mercy of the Lord? These curses of God, these punishments that He sends over His covenant people, they're always meant in the first place to trigger repentance, to stir up God's people to turn back their hearts to Him. You can read that all the way through Leviticus 26's list of curses. It's like a, a, a silver thread of hope that is woven in there. That the people will repent and the curses, more curses will not be needed, will not be required. And as you read Leviticus 26, the word if is a key word. God says in verse 18, and if in spite of this, in spite of these previous punishments, you will not listen to me still. Then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. The Lord repeats that in verse 23. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. If the sending of these covenant curses upon God's people is a form of discipline to cause them to repent back to the Lord before the ultimate curse of eternal damnation comes to rest upon them. That word if is a gospel word. 
It occurs again and again in Leviticus because of what God was planning to do in Jesus. Because God knew, God had planned, God had promised to pour out His total wrath, His complete wrath, the fullness of all those covenant curses, all on His only begotten Son in order to pay for every ounce of our rebellion. And because of that future event in God's plan, that left the way open for Him to pour out mercy, mercy upon repentant sinners who came back to their God with broken and contrite hearts. The march of Pharaoh on Judah and the destruction his army brought, along with the impoverishment, because they lost a lot of money, and the humiliation that fell upon Rehoboam and the people, it was awful. It was painful. It was ugly. Falling from the height of pride and arrogance to the low of disgrace and powerlessness is hard. But isn't it also oh so very good? It's good for Rehoboam's soul. Good for the souls of the princes of Judah. Good for the souls of God's people. Have you felt the humbling hand of your God in your life like Rehoboam? Was there a time when you have lived in arrogance before God? ignoring His Word, thinking you're all that. And then God brought your world crashing down. Are you there right now? Then do what Rehoboam did. Recognize the mercy you've been shown in the form of discipline and especially in Jesus Christ and then humble your heart before the Lord for something spectacular happens here in the midst of this Egyptian invasion sinful humble hearts they they start melting don't they before the word that the Lord speaks Rehoboam and, and the princes of Judah, they're holed up in Jerusalem. Shishak's army is parked outside the gates. The king and princes knew they were sitting ducks. It was only a matter of time before the Egyptians would break into the city. And in that crucible moment, a remarkable thing happens. We read in verse 5 that Shemaiah the prophet comes in to the city, and he preaches a sermon, just a one-sentence sermon. And that sermon devastates the king and the princes. Thus says the Lord, you abandoned me, and I have abandoned you into the hand of Shishak. And how do they respond then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. Do you see the miracle in that? This is God's grace and mercy, full bore in 
the hearts of the leaders. That foolish Rehoboam and the prideful rulers of Judah, that they should have a complete change of heart at that one-sentence sermon and basically admit and say, Lord, you are completely in the right. We are completely in the wrong. We fully deserve to have Shishak's army pillage and plunder our land because we rebelled against you. Lord, you are doing the right thing sending the Egyptians in. Imagine the humbleness that took to say that as king and princes. This, brothers and sisters, is true repentance. True repentance doesn't say, well, you know, I, it's true, I did a few things wrong, but, you know, the conditions I was under were pretty nasty and I felt I had to do this, or, you know, I didn't really receive enough guidance along the way, so, you know, try to understand, if you don't mind, why I did what I did. Nope. True repentance doesn't blame anybody like Adam and Eve did at the beginning. It makes no excuses. It doesn't try to squirm out of what I have done. I don't squirm out of my personal responsibility. It comes totally clean. I have to bear my soul before the Almighty against you. You only have I sinned, Lord. Like David says in Psalm 51, can we do that, brothers and sisters, with our sins? Can we get in the habit of saying in all truth and sincerity, I take full responsibility for my wrongs, my sin, and the mess that I'm in. It's all because of me. The Lord is righteous. I deserve what I get. We don't always get what we deserve, do we? Because of mercy. You know, at that moment when Shimea preaches his sermon, Rehoboam and the princes, what are they expecting? There's only one thing they could expect. The jig is up. The kingdom is over. Shishak was sure to capture Jerusalem and put them all to death or maybe deport them to Egypt. As far as Rehoboam and the rulers were concerned, this was all she wrote. But not as far as the Lord was concerned. Verse 7, there he comes again with more mercy and more grace. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them. But I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. Now, the upshot of all of that is that while Shishak demands the treasures of the palace and the temple in Jerusalem and steals them away to Egypt, he does not capture the capital city. He does not destroy the line of David. He does not burn down the temple. In fact, he soon marches off back to Egypt and leaves Rehoboam and Judah in place as an independent kingdom, free to rule themselves. And that is a tremendous relief, wouldn't it be? 
That's a divine gift that they experience. But another gift comes right along with it. It's mentioned in verse 8. It's the gift of ongoing discipline. The gift of a continual reminder of how pride and arrogance lead only to slavery and destruction. That's what God is, the Holy Spirit reveals in verse 8. Judah will serve the Egyptians in some fashion. Probably that meant paying tribute every year. So like a heavy taxation, that was a common thing to do when one nation conquered another, they would draw tribute from the conquered nation. And it was designed by God to teach them a lesson, to teach Rehoboam and Judah a lesson. There is no freedom and there is no lasting happiness outside of the Lord's service. When you serve me, says the Lord, you will be free and prosperous and peaceful in your own land. But when you reject me, you will always end up being a slave to another master. And that slavery is brutal. Be it Pharaoh, be it Satan, be it sin, or some combination thereof. And by having Rehoboam and the people pay tribute to Shishak year over year, the Lord was reminding them constantly of how close they came to total slavery, to total tyranny. And that in turn, would lead them to cling more tightly to the Lord their God. Isn't this very much like Paul's thorn in the flesh? Something that hurts, something that finds you in a weakened condition. Maybe you can relate. Sometimes God leaves us, doesn't He, in a state of weakness. In part, at least, so that we can learn to shun our pride and rely totally, solely on Him. And that lesson is a blessing, isn't it? It's a mercy for us to grow in dependence on the Lord, right? Though living in that weakened condition is often a source of grief, yet God uses it to bring greater good to us and His people. And isn't that what we see unfolding in the rest of Rehoboam's life? We have a, an interesting description in verse 9 of how Solomon's gold shields were taken by Shishak, along with everything else of value in Jerusalem. And then in verse 10 we read, King Rehoboam made in their places shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. Now, why would Rehoboam do that, you think? Make replacement shields of bronze. A lot of commentators explain that this shows how poor the kingdom had become. There was no gold or silver. Bronze had to be substituted for gold. And that seems true in itself, but why all the fuss with forging new shields why keep the shields under lock and key? Why trot them out at a specific moment? And some go a little further and say, well, Rehoboam made these shields to save face, to kind of still have some kind of show of glory and ostentatiousness, the glory like his father Solomon had. It may not be shields of gold, but at least it's shields of bronze, so he wants to have some kind of show. 
But really, does that fit with a heart that has been humbled before the Lord? The chronicler says it again in verse 12. He actually says it four times in the passage that the king humbled himself. And in verse 13, he adds, So King Rehoboam grew strong in Jerusalem and reigned. This is the author's shorthand way, his coded way of saying, The Lord blessed Rehoboam once again. After that repentance, he made him strong again, gave him prosperity again. You see, blessings for obedience. Not as a something owed, but as something graciously given, you understand. But that's the pattern. And if you count the years of Rehoboam's reign, a total of 17, that means he reigned for 12 more years after Shishak left. 12 years longer after he repented. Well, that also shows something of the Lord's favor. And he was buried in the city of David beside his fathers, we read in verse 16. That's another mark of God's favor because the evil kings most often were not buried in the tombs of their fathers. So reflecting on all of that, I think there's a better way to understand those bronze shields. The key, I think, is in verse 11 where it says, And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard came and carried them and brought them back to the guard room. So we understand from that that the palace guard would bring out the bronze shields on one singular occasion. Namely, when the king walked from his house, the palace, to God's house. In other words, on the occasion when the king went in to worship the Lord. Remember, he had abandoned all of that in the year before Shishak came calling. But now, with his heart humbled, Rehoboam is back worshiping faithfully at the temple. And it's he who commanded that the bronze shields be brought out as the king would make his way to the temple. Why would he want the bronze shields out? To remind himself of the devastation that his own sin had brought on Judah. Those bronze shields were a constant reminder of the consequences of Rehoboam's earlier sin. And so as he went in to worship the Lord, it was a way to humble his heart. That's what I did, those bronze shields, that's on me. And he would go in with a humble heart to worship the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? He started off a foolish king, didn't he? But the foolish king is slowly made wise under God's merciful touch. It's true, as verse 14 says, that he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. But that seems to be a description of only the earlier part of his reign and life, when he was immature, when he was unsteady in the faith. But through God's word and through God's hand of discipline, Shishak, Rehoboam learned to become humble and he learned to set his heart on seeking the Lord in the end. And we can too. We're not so different from Rehoboam, are we? 
Who has not felt the pull of pride and self-sufficiency? Which of us has not been immature and unsteady and even a foolish child of God? The only person with a perfectly devoted heart to God is Jesus Christ. And it's because of His spotless life of obedience together with His sacrificial death on the cross in our place that all of our foolishness is met with God's covenant mercy. Oh, it may be a severe mercy at times, correcting us with a hand of discipline that hurts. It may be a long mercy through slow teaching of us in our weakness, but it is mercy. It's our Father's mercy which brings to us blessing and life forevermore. Amen.